Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 323. It's titled, The Economy is Not a Machine. Yesterday, LaPrille and I were at a CVS pharmacy buying a gift card, and the gentleman before us in line added $61.05 to a prepaid Visa debit card. He added that amount because there was a $4.95 fee to add money to his card. Now, I hadn't seen that before, and I looked. These prepaid Visa cards can cost up to $9.95 a month and $5 or more to actually add money to the card. That is extremely expensive. Now, why would anybody do that? Well, usually because they don't have a bank. 7.1 million U.S. households or about 5% of the total, don't have a bank account in the U.S. It reminded me how different the interaction with the economy, the banking system, and money is for many individuals in the U.S. who are extremely poor. The recent U.S. Consumer Survey by the Federal Reserve, only one-third of lower-income families participated in the stock market compared to 70% of upper-middle-income families and more than 90% of families in the top decile of income. Less than 40% of families in the bottom half of the income distribution in the U.S. were in a retirement plan, compared to more than 80% for upper-middle-income families and more than 90% for families in the top decile of income. I thought about this a lot over the Thanksgiving break as I was reading a book by Roger Martin. He was a professor of strategic management at the University of Toronto and has published 11 books. His most recent is titled, When More is Not Better, Overcoming America's Obsession with Economic Efficiency. He shared some sobering data that he calculated based on U.S. Census information. From 1947 through 1976, the real median family income grew at 2.4% per year. So real, after adjusting for inflation, median being the middle family. At that growth rate, the median family was twice as well off economically in 1976 as a family in 1947. But in the 42 years following the bicentennial in the U.S., median income only grew 0.6% per year, meaning that that family wasn't twice as well off, but only about 31% better off than they were the prior 42 years. That median family, they're not experiencing the same level of prosperity as those in the upper decile of income, or even the top 25th percentile. 
There used to be a very tight relationship between the economy becoming more productive, more efficient, and wage growth. Now you're not seeing that connection. In this episode, we're going to look at what has changed with regards to the economy that is leading to more concentration of income and wealth and is a threat to democracy. In 2013, hedge fund manager Ray Dalio released a video titled How the Economic Machine Works. It talked about different cycles, debt cycles, but this analogy of the economy being machine is very old. The idea that the economy can be broken down into parts and optimized and then the parts put back together and there's some predictability to the economy because it's just a machine that works very, very efficiently. And because it's a machine, the way it's supposed to work is that over time, outcomes, economic outcomes, income, wages are normally distributed. This is called a Gaussian distribution where you have a big bulge in the middle the middle class. Less individuals are wealthy and less are poor, but over time, the distribution moves to the right. So everyone gets wealthier and participates in that growth. The poor, the middle class, the wealthy. Median income grows for the middle family, and it grows as fast as the average income. But that's not the situation today. Now the average income is growing faster than the median income, and has been for several decades. Now, in this most recent survey by the Federal Reserve, it actually showed that the median for the prior three years through 2019 did grow faster than the average. But that was before the pandemic hit. And it's a good thing, because if the average is growing faster than the median, that means that higher income households are getting a larger and larger percentage. And that has been the predominant pattern since 1980. A pattern where the wealthy are getting wealthier in income or any outcome where a small subset is getting a greater percentage of the spoils, that's called a power law distribution or a Pareto distribution based on the economists that developed it. It's commonly known as the 80-20 rule, where, for example, 20% of a business's clients generate 80% of the profit. With a Pareto distribution, the average or mean isn't very meaningful because a small percentage has the bulk of, in this case, income, and the median can be much less than the average. Why are some things more normally distributed and others distributed using a Pareto distribution? A key difference is with a Gaussian distribution or a normal distribution, each observation is independent. They're not linked to each other. For example, if you did a survey of a group of individuals and ranked them by height, how tall one individual is is independent from how tall somebody else is. And as a result, you get sort of this big bulge in the middle of heights, and some are going to be extremely tall and others will be very short. We can contrast that with social media, Instagram, where the biggest names have the huge amount of followers, and the decision by somebody to follow someone on Instagram is influenced by how many followers they have. There's some linkage between the current outcomes and the future outcomes, and it leads to these power law distributions where the outcomes are skewed. 
where a smaller percentage of the population, of businesses, of influencers get the largest bulk of income. What is causing this? Well, certainly connectivity and technology allows for greater connection so we can actually see who is the most popular author or the most popular company. And that's certainly a driver of it. But the other driver is this frame of looking at the economy as a machine that can be broken down into parts that need to be optimized. The drive and pressure for greater and greater efficiency is leading to more skewed outcomes. The example that Martin uses in his book is the same example that I used in my book, a sand pile. If you drop kernels of sand one by one into a pile, the pile grows. But eventually, gravity becomes so great that pressure that there's a collapse and there's an avalanche. There's a connection between the different kernels of sand. There's linkages. And then there's that pressure of gravity that leads to the collapse. This is known as a complex adaptive system, or as Martin puts in his book, just a natural system. It's different from a a machine where there's connection between the parts and the level of connection we don't always know. You can't just be reductionist and break down the different parts and then put them all together. It's a holistic approach. The whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And the connections are unknown. And a complex adaptive system adapts over time. The economic system, participants are always looking for ways to game it, to get ahead. And so it changes. Natural systems, complex adaptive systems are nonlinear. Martin writes, in a natural system, the outcome is the product of dynamic interactions between and among the parts rather than a simple addition of the outputs of the parts. That is, one can't just add up the parts and produce the whole. In fact, it's often hard to identify what the parts actually are. A family is a system. It's not possible to add up the individual features of a family and predict its functioning because the interactions make it too hard to understand in advance how they will play out. The body is a system. One can't really divorce the functioning of the liver from that of the kidneys or the heart or even the brain though modern approaches to medicine often attempt to do just that. So the economy is not a machine. It's a complex adaptive system with many parts interacting, adapting over time. There's great connectivity between the parts. And there's great pressure for efficiency, driving companies to be more and more efficient. And because company managers want to optimize the individual parts, that often leads to disproportionate outcomes because they're cutting wages and they're cutting costs, trying to eliminate any slack to optimize that machine. We've seen this in the job space, some jobs that are more creative and others that are more routine. And then you have some companies that are dispersed around, they're very much local such as a hair salon, and then you have companies that are more clustered where they have a demanding market share. Zoom, for example. There's connectivity and there's a network effect with Zoom. You can't do Zoom by yourself. You have to Zoom with somebody else. And so that allows for Zoom to get greater and greater market share. Martin points out that 40% of jobs in the U.S. are creativity intensive and 60% are routine intensive. 
Routine jobs in dispersed industries make up 45% of the U.S. job market, but they bring in 37% less than the national average income. Routine jobs in clustered companies make up about 16% of the labor force, and they earn 18% below the national income average. Creative jobs in dispersed industries make up 25% of the labor market, and they earn 36% above the national average. And then creative jobs in more clustered industries, where you have companies like Amazon, Microsoft that have dominance, they make up 14% of the labor force and earn 78% more than the national average. Again, this points back to a power law distribution for the economy that as it has evolved, it has not allowed the middle class and the poor to keep up because more and more income is going to those with higher incomes. And it's not like it's anyone's fault. It's this endless drive for efficiency. So what's the risk if the economy evolves like this? If we get greater and greater concentration within industries, within sectors, it can lead to catastrophic collapses, contagion. For example, Amazon Web Services. It's where I store data for the Money for the Rest of Us Plus app. Their Virginia data center had an outage a few weeks ago, and that impacted scores of companies. Or take monoculture, where 80% or more of the almonds are grown in the Central Valley of California. If disease hits those crops, then that potentially could be catastrophic. I discussed this in episode 179 of the podcast, Free Markets and the Great Famine, and talked about the potato famine in Ireland that led millions of people to leave Ireland, including some of my ancestors. Martin writes, rather than producing resilient ecosystems, our obsession with efficiency is producing fragile monocultures, potentially vulnerable to catastrophic failure. No doubt the monocultures are efficient in a narrow sense, but that efficiency has a dark side. The problem is we have become so convinced that efficiency at all costs is a universal good that we have lost sight of its risk. We have stopped seeking dynamic balance entirely. And the balance that he's referring to is the balance between efficiency and resiliency. He points out that a system is resilient if it can adjust to changing circumstances over time and adapt in a way that will allow it to function and deliver its intended benefits. So if there's a threat to it, it can adapt just like the natural world does. One of the biggest risks to the economy becoming more and more concentrated with regards to income and wealth is it's a threat to democracy. We just went through a contentious presidential election. And the U.S. is still very much divided. But Martin points out that capitalism requires the consent of the majority of the citizens. At least 51% need to feel like they have hope and that they have the opportunity to progress and participate and that the cards aren't stacked against them. And if they don't feel like capitalism is working for them, if they're seeing that their incomes are not growing to the same extent that they were, and that the wealthier are getting wealthier, and that the powerful are getting more powerful, they might not buy into the system anymore, become indifferent, could rebel. Ultimately, that could harm economic growth 
in the long term. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. Thanks for listening to the episode. If you would like to become a better investor, there's two ways I can help you with that. First, consider joining my Insider's Guide email list, where I'll send you a weekly essay on money, investing, and the economy, and other helpful resources. You can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com. I've also mentioned Money for the Rest of Us Plus in this episode. Please consider joining before prices increase 50% for new members as of January 1st, 2021. This is a community that can help you build an institutional quality investment portfolio. You can learn more at moneyfortherestofus.com. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one program and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. With everything getting more expensive these days, it's wise to find ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. You can do that with NetSuite. And by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com david. That's netsuite.com david. netsuite.com david. What are the solutions to this increasing concentration? The idea that the economy is not a machine, but it's a natural system, a complex adaptive system. And how should we interact with it? These solutions apply to companies, individuals, and government. And in reading through Martin's book, there were suggestions there, solutions that are being implemented, but many of them still need to be discovered. But understanding what is happening and why, that's what I found so enlightening about the book. The connection between that pressure for greater efficiency combined with the connectiveness of the modern economy is what is leading to more skewed income and wealth distribution. And that greater and greater efficiency is leading ultimately to a greater risk of catastrophic collapse because of monocultures, because of monopolies and the dominance of certain companies or industries. One solution, then, is to limit the amount of pressure by adding friction to the system. Martin gives the example of pitchers. Major league pitchers used to stay in the game as long as they were pitching well. But now they have pitch counts so that they're less likely to injure their pitching arm and can have a more extended career. So there's friction, there's slack added to the system. This idea to continually to optimize, to be as efficient as possible, it's stressful. I saw this recently. We sold our house in Phoenix and bought one in Tucson. For the house that we bought in Tucson, we actually signed the papers in Idaho. I went to a Wells Fargo branch 
And the banker was very pleasant. He took his time, paid attention to what he was notarizing and what we had signed. We conversed about the local housing market there in Teton Valley, and we weren't hurried. Now, I contrast that with the notary that came to our house here in Tucson for our Phoenix closing. She was rushed. She had another appointment in 30 minutes, and she was rushing us through the documents. And she would say, this document is this. And as I'm trying to read the documents, she would continue to talk, and then I couldn't grasp what I was reading. And I've gone through a lot of closings, and I wasn't trying to read every word. I was just trying to figure out the tax liability and make sure that we did that particular document right. But there was that pressure, and we saw the same thing with the team that we hired to unload our moving truck. They're rushing around because they had another appointment. There was no slack in their schedule. And they damaged some things because they were in such a hurry. We need to build slack in our daily lives and our schedule. And companies need to build slack. They try to optimize something to where there's no slack. If something breaks, it could impact the entire company. So adding some friction and some slack. The Federal Reserve does this and other central banks. They use their interest rate policy in order to add some friction to the economy if it's growing too quickly and you're starting to see capacity constraints and potentially higher inflation. And so they raise the policy rate and that flows through higher interest rates in the economy. So less households and businesses borrow, which means less money is created by banks as they make loans. And that leads to less risk of capacity constraints and higher inflation but there's that friction of interest rates. Another solution is to have more holistic thinking. Stop considering the economy or companies as this machine that could be reduced to its parts and those parts optimized and then added back together and everything's running smoothly. Martin writes, managers should instead embrace the reality that a business is a complex adaptive system in which the components and subsystems are highly interdependent Human processes in which over-optimizing one part compromises optimization of another part and can lead to alienation and disengagement from people you need to be most engaged. This ideal of silos and that some people are the most important, they're going to make the most, and other people are cogs and we can cut corners and not reward them. It needs to be more balanced, balanced growth. Back when I was an investment advisor on our executive committee, I introduced some work by Robert Kaplan and David Norton called the Balanced Scorecard. And the idea is in the company, we would have different measures. We had goals from a financial perspective, and we had goals and objectives from a client perspective. We had goals and objectives from an internal operational perspective. And then we had goals and objectives from a learning and growth perspective of our associates. So it was a balanced approach. One of the risks of over-optimizing is we focus on just one measure. And because it's just a focus on one measure, then oftentimes people try to game that measure and it doesn't even achieve the result that we want. So a balanced, holistic perspective. And recognizing that a company or our lives or the government or the economy is a natural system that can't be optimized and we don't know what the impact would be of any change that we make, we need to make tweaks over time, small adjustments, and to see what happens, to try to understand the system. I talked about this in in my book with regards to portfolio management. 
using the analogy of the piecemeal engineer from the philosopher Karl Popper. He says a piecemeal engineer makes small adjustments and readjustments rather than try to improve the system as a whole with one huge major adjustment. That way, we can learn from our mistakes. System theorist John Sturman wrote, There are no side effects, only effects. Those we thought of in advance, the ones we like, we call the main or intended effects and take credit for them. The ones we didn't anticipate, the ones that came around and bit us in the rear, those are the side effects. The solution to the increasing concentration of wealth and incomes, it's not going to be just, well, here's the answer. It's going to be a series of tweaks and adjustments. And it starts with companies and companies management recognizing that they need to reward their employees and give more responsibility to their employees so that they can pay them more. So they're not just siloed, but they're given more opportunity to grow. Another solution is to balance connectedness with separation. We see this in forest management. There are are fire breaks put in so that you don't get the contagion. We see it in the stock market. There are circuit breakers. So if the stock market falls a certain percent or a company's stock falls a certain percent, there's a timeout, there's a pause so that we don't get some type of cascade. So there's some separations, separation of time, separation of physical space. Buffers are put in place. And a final thing is to don't continually reward companies that are getting bigger and bigger. Buy more local. Seek more diversity so that we get less monopolistic concentration. Now, there's no one solution to the woes of a more and more concentrated economy. It's not necessarily somebody's fault. It is how the world has evolved as it has become more connected, as there has been more technology. But it's also because of this focus on efficiency at all cost, of optimization at all cost of thinking of the economy as a machine that can be reduced to its parts and those parts optimized, rather than recognizing that it is a natural system, a complex adaptive system with interconnectedness and nonlinear outcomes that we have to have a sense of humility in dealing with. And when we see the income distribution becoming so skewed that many, many individuals feel disenfranchised and don't want to support the system, including the democracy, that's a huge risk. So look for ways in your own life and in your business to add some slack, to add some friction so that there isn't this constant drive for efficiency. Think more holistically and less reductionist, recognizing there's complexity there and there's linkages we don't even understand. Seek to make tweaks and see what happens and small improvements over time. Add buffers and fire breaks. Again, Roger Martin's book is When More is Not Better, Overcoming America's Obsession with Economic Efficiency. It gave me a lot to think about, see how I can apply those principles in my life and how I invest and in how I run my business. That then is episode 323. Thanks for listening to the episode. If you would like to become a better investor, there's two ways I can help. First, consider signing up for my free email newsletter, The Insider's Guide. This is where I'll share with you expert insight on money, investing, and the economy in written form, some of the best writing I do each week. 
You can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com. A second way to become a better investor is to become a member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus. This community is for serious investors that want to access professional-grade portfolio tools, training, and a community to build an institutional-quality investment portfolio and adapt it as market conditions evolve over time. We would love to have you as a member, and you can learn more at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.